1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, Gideon has doubts and tests the Lord with overnight fleeces. Then the Lord tests Gideon and says, You have too many men. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter six, verse thirty-three. Once again, that's Judges chapter six, verse thirty-three. Let's look at verse thirty-three.
2: Well, at that time, then, shortly after this event at Gideon's refuge, wherever that was, it says the Midianites and the Malachites and the children of the east—this three-part coalition that had wiped out Israel seven years ago and were a misery to them since. Well, it says they were gathered together and went over. Gideon, when we first met him, remember he was threshing the wheat in a, a wine press? Well, he had gotten out in front of the enemy before they crossed the Jordan River and came into the land to harvest some grain. When our story starts, he was trying to get out in front of them and get some of the harvest in before they came. But they're back now, back to wreak havoc again. And so they went over, they crossed over the Jordan River, and they pitched in the valley of Jezreel. That's the valley of Megiddo, the same place where Barak fought Sisera, the judge before Gideon. Now, later we're going to learn that the number of the soldiers in this coalition is 135,000. That's terrifying. But God empowers Gideon to respond. Look at verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet... And Abbeyser was gathered after him. What does it mean the Spirit of the Lord came upon him? It says, The Spirit of the Lord clothed him. Now, in the New Testament, it describes three relationships we have with the Holy Spirit. Jesus explained to the disciples, He said, He is with you and He shall be in you. I think it's John chapter 14 when that is said. So he described a relationship they already had, that He was with them. Now, John also goes on to explain that the Spirit of God, part of his job, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when he comes alongside of us, that's what he does. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of this concept that being a sinner is not normal. It's not okay. Jesus did not sin. The Son of Man did not sin. He was perfect, and so he proved it could be done. But we choose not to. That's the first job of the Holy Spirit, is to convict us of that concept. My kids, almost all of them, came to me at some point, and they said, you know Dad? I'm really upset with Adam and Eve because they messed up this whole thing for us. And that's a wonderful opportunity if your kids ever come to you like that to say to them and say, well, let me ask you a question. Do you always choose to obey the Lord? And you love watching their face when you do that. Well, no. So you've kind of made the same choice they did, huh? So what's the difference that they made it first? That you made the choice too is not their fault. That's on you. that's what the Spirit of God does to us. He comes to convict us. You know, when you talk to somebody and you start sharing the gospel with them, you're like, yeah, well, nobody's perfect. That's an untrue statement. Christians should never say no one is perfect because Jesus was. Jesus was perfect. So that's the first thing. He says that he convicts us of sin because the Son of Man is ascended and whatever it says there. Then he convicts us of righteousness, that there is a standard that God has and we have not kept it. So we say, yeah, but nobody's perfect. Okay, it's not just that nobody's perfect. Let's look at God's standard. And you see, it's not that you just failed a few times. You've broken everything. And then of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged, that there's a price to pay for that, that God has to judge sin. So he comes alongside of us to do that, to bring us to Christ. And when we come to Christ, the Bible says he comes inside of us. The moment we get saved, the Spirit of God baptizes us. Jesus baptizes us into the body of Christ. The Spirit of God comes inside of us, right? And he takes up residence with us, and he begins the work of sanctification. The work of sanctification is making us more like Christ, making us holy. He begins to do that work of transformation, replacing and putting to death the deeds of the flesh and replacing it with the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Okay. Now, there's a third relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that Jesus said to them. He said, now, receive the Holy Ghost. And he says, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Ghost. They were born again. The Spirit of God came to live inside. But then he says, but wait, I don't want you to do anything until you be endued with power from on high, until you be baptized or clothed upon with the Holy Spirit. And that is the empowerment to not just change us on the inside, but to overflow us and affect people around us. And that is what this is referring to here, that Spirit of God coming upon him, clothing him. While the Old Testament saints weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's a New Testament believer experience. While they didn't have that, they did experience the power of the Holy Spirit when God deemed it necessary. So Gideon was not going to be able to be this leader in his own strength. So the Spirit of God clothed him for this task so he could be this leader, so he could have the courage and the boldness to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm and say, the enemy's in our land, and we need to go fight (laughs) him. That's a pretty crazy thing to do, and you got 135,000 people sit in a valley, and for seven years, they've been doing whatever they wanted. But the Spirit of God helped him to get to that place, and he blew the trumpet. Now, Moses Taught Israel to gather for battle or to stop to camp based on trumpet blasts. So this was a sound Israel had not heard since seven years ago when they had gotten whooped. Gideon has no guarantee anyone will come, but it mentions some did. It says an Abiezer was gathered unto him. Now, remember, he said, "I'm the youngest, least important family member in my family, and my family comes from the least important clan in my tribe." So. Gideon's family was like the least important family in his clan, and his clan was the least important clan in his tribe. And so first he leads his family. Now who rallies to his leadership? His whole clan, the whole family of Abiezer. They all come to follow his leadership. Now, like I said, Gideon had told the Lord that his family was the least important in his clan. Certainly not the prime material for leadership. So why do they come? doesn't say. It was the Lord. And they show up. And when they rally to his side, Gideon sends out messengers to the rest of his tribe. Look at verse 35. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, semicolon. That's the first thing he does. So now he's going to hit the rest of his tribe, who were also gathered after him. So now all the whole tribe of Manasseh comes. And then, after that happened, he sent messengers unto Asher, and then unto Zebulun, unto Naphtali, three other tribes in the north there. And they came up to meet him, to join his army as well. Step by step, Gideon kept being faithful and people kept coming. You know, these tribes are from the northern part of Israel, which is where the is currently camped. So I don't know why Gideon doesn't send messengers to the southern tribes, because that will become a problem in future chapters they are going to complain to him and go, why didn't you send for us too? But everyone he asked to come so far has answered the call. And that leaves Gideon a little shell-shocked. He's like, this is happening. Oh my gosh, this is happening. (laughs) And it terrifies him. So he asked God to confirm yet again that this is his will. Verse 36. And Gideon said unto God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, he confesses already that God had already told him this. So this this whole ritual here is superfluous. But he said to him, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew that's there in the morning be on the floor, the fleece only, but it be dry upon the earth all around it, well, then I'll know, I'll know for sure now, that you will save Israel by mine hand, as you have said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow, and he thrust the fleece together and rang the dew out of the fleece, a full bowl of water, not a drop anywhere else, but it's all in the fleece. And the Gideon said unto God, Well, let not your anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray you, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew." And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Now, these five verses here, they have become a modern-day doctrine. I hear people, Christians, say all the time, Well, I'm sitting on a fleece to determine God's will for my life. I'm not saying that's the worst theology, but it's certainly not good theology. Gideon's not doing a good thing here, okay? By Gideon's own admission, God already told Gideon what to do. He just doesn't want to do it. And though God came through at every moment up to this point, he doesn't trust God to do it again. We have a word for that. It's called unbelief. (laughs) So if you are saying, yeah, I'm putting out a fleece, it means you have a problem with unbelief. It's not a problem with God's command. It's not a problem with God's faithfulness. So probably not the best thing to do as a Christian. Now, I say this, and I have done it. While God in his graciousness sometimes answers our requests, even when we're in unbelief, it is not how we're supposed to pray. Look at James chapter 1 with me. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. James 1, 5. If any of you lack wisdom, James says, follow Gideon's example, right? Is that what it says? That a mask of God, who gives to all men liberally, generously, and upbraids not, he doesn't rebuke you for coming to him with questions, and it shall be given unto him. But, Let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, King James says, but it means nothing doubting. For he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, your circumstances are what drive you rather than the Lord, showing you something. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And then it says it. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. Listen, if God just ignored Gideon here and didn't do the miracle and just ignored him and said, you already know what you need to do, son, God wouldn't have done anything wrong. It's not that God will never answer. James doesn't say, well, if you ask an unbelief, God won't answer you. I people teach that all the time. Well, you got to believe. you got to trust God. God won't answer you. God can't answer you if you don't believe. Listen, God can do what he wants, first off. And secondly, you don't lock him into doing something by your faith. God does as he pleases. He's sovereign. He does what he pleases. So God does what he pleases, all right? However, he wants us to ask in faith, because when we ask in faith, that's the only time we can expect God to answer. If you're asking unbelief, you're not expecting God to answer. You're looking for a way out. You're looking for a way out. And so, get in. he's not doing a good thing here. I remember when we got the news that Pastor Gibb was retiring, and so we all gathered around. We held hands. We prayed for Calvary Chapel Orlando. God would help him find a new pastor. it would be with Pastor Gibb and help him with his health and, and watch over the church and, and lead him and guide him in the direction for them to get a new pastor. And I remember sitting there, and I was going, praying, and just praying for you know, God to bless the church and lead and guide him. And, and I felt so clear the Lord said, it's you. And so we get done praying, and everybody goes their way. And I'm just kind of sitting there, and I was kind of shell-shocked by the news because... Gibbs probably one of the, still one of the healthiest men I've ever met in my life. Pretty sure his handshake's still better than mine. Probably sure he'd beat me in ping pong still. I never imagined anything ever happening to him that would physically need to retire. And so I was kind of stunned. But then when that thought hit me, I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, And and that's not the Lord. And I thought, why would God do something like that? And I just dismissed it out of hand. I couldn't sleep that night. And so I woke up in the morning and I said, Lord, I am not talking to you about this unless someone from Calvary Chapel Orlando calls me and tells me I should apply. My fleece. (laughs) Because I didn't want to do it. Well, (laughs) that afternoon, I got a call from Pastor Gibb. He was returning my call because I knew he had been in the hospital, but I didn't I didn't realize that he was retiring, and that just caught me by surprise. And so I called him. I said, I want to make sure you're doing okay. And so he was returning my call, and he was letting me know he was doing great, doing fine, just really believe you know God's doing this, da-da-da, and started telling me about the process that they were going to be going through eventually and stuff. And, you know, just how people say things. And he just goes, hey, you should throw your hat in the ring. And I just, he says that, and I'm like, Daniel, I'm astonished for an hour. And he goes, "You okay?" And I said, "No." And I go, "Why did you say that?" And then Pastor Gibb was quiet, and he goes, "No reason." I said, "Are you sure?" He said, "No." And then I hung up. I waited six weeks to apply. I must have put out five or six other tests. It had nothing to do with what. I knew God wanted me to do it. I had to do with, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to take a step of faith again. I didn't want to do something new. I hate change. You would think for Gideon, a bowl full of water would be enough to get his attention. But he's still looking for a way out. So he does it the opposite way. God, let's make sure it's not coincidence. Listen, that is the exact opposite of our Savior, who, when he didn't want to do something that God called him to do, what did he say? Nevertheless, if there's any other way, I'm cool to sign up for that. If we can do this without the cross, sign me up. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. No tests for his father, none. Submission. That's how we're supposed to pray. It's not that we can't ask questions. There's so many times I've asked God questions. I like, I don't understand what you're doing. When it became abundantly clear that I was supposed to come down here and I, I was getting ready to send my application and I thought, this is bonkers. It's, I've probably been past the time now. I've probably wasted too much time. It's probably over. I mean, I was just a wreck because I, I had not submitted to the Lord. I remember the morning when I decided that I was going to do this, I had a two-hour argument in the freezer at my job with God because the only place I could argue out loud, no one would think I was crazy. I went and I taught that night at the rescue mission. Taught on Gideon. Then I got in the car. And at that time, Z had a a rock station. And there's only one song they could ever play that I hated on that station. And that's the song that was on. So I flip over to TLN, the radio station that we're on now. And who's teaching? Alistair Begg on Gideon. I had to pull over. I was crying so hard. I finally said i give up. (laughs) Done fighting. I'll do it. They won't pick me, but I'll do it. The Lord wants us just to say, not my will, but your will be done. I've got questions, Lord. I had all sorts of questions. I've never, I mean, it took me 18 years to get to here. I can't go pastor a larger church. I don't know how to do this. I've never had a staff before. I've never had this. I've never had that. I'm not the right person for this. I had all sorts of questions for God. It's okay to have questions, but not to be defiant. I can't do this. It's crazy. Hey, I got. I blew the trumpet. You know, I, I, did, I did what you said. But, but and this is happening now. This is crazy. He knows he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. He says to the Lord, he says, let not your anger be hot. Let me just prove one more time. Let me ask just one more test. You know? He knows he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He knows he's doing something that's offensive to God but God, because he wants Gideon to trust him. And like so often graciously he does with us, like he did with me, because God wants others to experience his blessings, he he answers Gideon's requests of unbelief. And at this point then, Gideon, now he has no way out. No argument to not lead the people. And so in chapter 7, it says in verse 1, then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, And all the people that were with him, they rose up early and they pitched besides the well of Harad, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The well of Harad is a spring at the base of Mount Gilboa on the south side of the valley of Jezreel. In modern day Israel, it's a park. But there they are at this well, and the Midianites are camped on the north side of the valley, so way across from the other side. And... He's got about 32,000 men. 32,000 against 135,000 means Israel's outnumbered five to one. That's a frightening proposition if they were there on their own. But like Elisha said to his servant, they that are with us are more than they that are with them. The Lord was with Gideon. And what's interesting is the Lord decides they have too many. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Why? Why? lest Israel vaunt themselves against me saying my own hand to save me therefore go to and proclaim in the ears of the people saying whoever is fearful and afraid let him return and depart early from mount gilead and there returned of the people 22000 and there remained 10000 now this command from god when you combine it with gideon's idol destruction it leads me to believe again that israel has not repented by this point they're still not really trust in the Lord. And so God seeks to do something that will get their attention and bring them back to him. And so just like that, 22,000 troops are gone. Anybody afraid? 22,000 go up. Okay, you can go home. Addition by massive subtraction. No. No one would call getting a good leader inspirational or anything if we didn't know how this ends. But God's faithfulness at each step had brought Gideon to a place where he absolutely knew that this was God's plan for his life, no matter how crazy it seemed. And yet God's not done shrinking the Israeli army. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many, still too many. I want you to bring them down to the water. The spring there creates a large pool. Again, that's why it's a park now in modern-day Israel. They've beautified it, and people come there and camp and stuff and run around with their families. There, he says, I want you to bring them down to the water, and I will test them there with you. And it shall be that of whom I say unto you, this shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whosoever I say unto you, this shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So God says, I want you to go down to the pool of water there, and there's going to be a test, and that will decide who goes and who doesn't. Now, the word there for test, it means to refine or purify. In other words, I'm going to refine this army or purify this army in some way. And so it says in verse 5, Gideon brought down the people into the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that laps of the water with his tongue, they just stick their face in the water, he says, as a dog laps, well, then him shall you set by on, on one group. And likewise, everyone that gets down on their knees to drink, and they scoop it up with their hand. And the number of them that lapped, just putting their hand to the mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people, they dunked their heads in the water on their knees to drink the water. So you've got 300 and then whatever's left of the 10,000 in two different groups. And the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men that lapped, will I save you? And deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let the other people go, every man to his place. Now, I've heard many state that this was a test from God to see who the best soldiers were because the ones you know, who would get on their knees and who would do like this, were they were vigilant and they were looking around. and They, they were the guys, the elite soldiers that Gideon needed. And the other guys were just oblivious. Oh, we don't know how to fight. And while that's funny and stuff, the problem with that is that God has already said the reason he's whittling the army down is so Israel wouldn't be able to look to their expertise or their own strength. If Gideon's 300 are the most elite soldiers in Israel, that ruins the purpose. If they're the ones that are really ready to fight, that ruins the purpose. We have to also consider that when we get later in chapter 7 and the battle happens, Israel's not routing these Midianites through guerrilla warfare. You know, they're 300 just, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things to defeat them. The Midianites and their coalition fight themselves in the confusion of the trumpets. There's nothing about their soldiers here, about them being elite. So I don't know why some lapped the water, and I don't know why some cup the water, only that God had a clear purpose. I only know that. They that had a clear purpose to show his power, and that's why he separated them. And then the result is Gideon's left with 300 men. Now, Gideon could have said, this is crazy, but he doesn't. He's finally trusting the Lord. He knows what God set him to do. He's seen God be with him every step of the way, and he's okay with it. So it's not crazy that God's whittling the army down. What was crazy was to call Gideon in the first place. Everything else has just been par for the course. And so he obeys. And so the people, they took victuals, verse 8, in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, unto his tent and retained those 300 men and the host of Midian, it was right there beneath him in the valley. But you know, again, this shows us we don't make decisions based on the odds. We also don't follow the Lord based on whether we're qualified or we're worthy. We make decisions based on God's word because we love him. And we want to obey what he says. And we do what he says, not because we're worthy, but because, well, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. And if he calls me, he can equip me. Amen? Lord, I just said that if you call us, you can equip us. That's not really an if. It's if you call us, you will equip us. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for how you've called me to be a father and a husband, a friend, pastor, Christian. Lord, you've called me to various things. You've called all the people here to to something. And so, Lord, whatever you've called us to, you equip us to do it, to do it well in a way that pleases you. And so that's our desire, Lord. We want to be those who just are obedient because we love you and we want to follow you. We're obedient to whatever it is that you call us to do. So, Lord, whether it's to be the idol killer like Gideon or whether it's to be the best dad my kids could ever have, the best mom my kids could ever have, Lord, we want to be faithful and obedient to that because we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for calling us. We give ourselves to you to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play.